Well, Pepsi-Cola has made promises they can't keep. Uh, last week, I told you about the marketing campaign where they had a catalog of points that you could redeem by buying their product. And after a certain number of Pepsi cans, you could get sunglasses or a jacket. And in the commercial, it said you could get for 7 million points a fighter jet. And so we looked at that poor schmo who actually believed them um, and tried to claim his flight fighter jet. And after a lawsuit and a, a lot of ups and downs, was eventually told, look, we were only joking and you should have known that. That was not the first time that Pepsi made a promise they could not deliver on. In February 1992, Pepsi-Cola launched a marketing campaign in the Philippines, in which they printed numbers ranging from 1 to 999 on the, the lining, the crowns of the uh, bottles, um, the Pepsi bottles. And so as you bought one, you would open it up and you would see the number, and then each night on the news, a number was called out and prizes were given based on the number that you had. And so uh, cash prizes ranging from $4, the equivalent of $4, to the grand prize of $40,000. Well, the campaign was extremely successful. Um, within just a short four months, um, monthly sales had increased from $10 million to $14 million. People just kept buying Pepsi in the Philippines because uh, to them this was a lot of money. $40,000 as the grand prize uh, was the equivalent of 50 years' wage for the average Filipino. And a number of people had been winning. Um, 17 grand prizes had already been won. And so a lot of people that, that were buying these were winning $4, they were winning $10, and, and people heard about this. It was on the news that these 17 people had won this $40,000, and so they kept buying the, the cola. And then on May 25th, 1992, the grand prize winning number was announced. On national television, it was the number 349. But that announcement was a mistake. Uh, what actually, it was supposed to be 134. But somehow there was some mix-up and then number 349 was announced. And the reason that was a problem is because there was only one bottle that had been printed with the number 134 on it. But guess how many bottles had been printed with the number 349? 800,000. And so a lot of people had a wonderful celebration that night thinking they had just won 50 years wage. And when 800,000 people tried to claim their prize, which would have cost uh, Pepsi $9 billion, they just said, I'm sorry, we can't deliver. Uh, they just didn't have that kind of money to do that. Um, they'd only put $2 million aside for all the prizes, so they, they just couldn't. Um, at an emergency meeting at 3 a.m., uh, executives from Pepsi got together and decided, uh, after doing all the math, that they would take a $9 million loss if they offered everybody an $18 prize as a consolation. Well, what would you do? Um, about half the people accepted the $18 prize, half those people. So they, they must have thought, you know what, we know Pepsi's never going to be able to pay this, let's at least take what we can get. And tens of thousands of irate customers formed what became known as the 349 Alliance to boycott and protest Pepsi making this promise that they couldn't keep. Pepsi executives received death threats, two people died in protests, 37 company Trucks were attacked, either stoned or set on fire or turned over. 22,000 people took legal action. 
Eventually, the case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Pepsi. All they said was Pepsi was not liable to pay the amounts promised. And that's that. 50 years wage evaporating overnight. Now, what's interesting is that none of those people actually lost money, if you think about it. Everybody paid for a Pepsi, they got their Pepsi. So why were these tens of thousands of people so irate that they were making death threats and, and burning down trucks and taking people to court if they hadn't actually been defrauded of anything, they hadn't lost anything? And the answer is because Pepsi made a promise. And when you put your hopes in a promise and that is snatched from you, that can be a devastating experience. It shakes your confidence in the future and in any promises that anyone makes you. With that in mind, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the concept that the Apostle Peter addresses this morning. Now, we're in a, a little two-part mini-series here. Um, last week, we saw how Peter, writing to the persecuted Christians that had been scattered from their homeland, those that he calls the elect exiles, uh, he was writing to them, blessing God, and really blessing God and setting an example for them, the elect exiles, to bless God for three sources of hope to carry them through trials and, by extension, to carry us. So he, he gives, straight after his greeting, where he talks about the plan of salvation, the purpose of, of salvation, the path of salvation, he now gives these three sources of hope so that they can endure the trials that they're in. Um, and last week we looked at the first one, eternal life. This week we're going to look at in, eternal inheritance and eternal security. But under eternal life, we broke that down into three confidences that we have that our hope is real. So one of the, the sources of hope is that you will have eternal life. But how do you have confidence that God's actually come, going to come through with that promise? And there's three of those confidences given. One is that it stems from His mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. Number two, it was started by His action. That's why you can have confidence that it's true. Um, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And three, it's, it was secured in the past. It's not dependent on anything that still needs to happen that might not happen. Because it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's what we saw last week, these uh, three sources of hope. The first one, we saw three confidences that that's true. This week, we're going to look at eternal inheritance and security. Let me read for you from verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then in future weeks we'll look at, in this you rejoice, Though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, etc., etc. But we're only going to look at verse 4 and verse 5 this morning. The eternal inheritance. Now this word inheritance, it's the same word that comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak about the, the parcels of land that were given to Israel. This was considered your tribe's inheritance was the piece of land that came by lot and was allotted to your tribe in perpetuity. Um, and so this, this is a concept we're all familiar with. An inheritance is a possession or property or some legacy 
that gets passed down from one person to another, usually when the person that first owned it dies. Um, so here, Peter moves from praising God for our salvation in general to praising him for a very specific benefit of our salvation, and that is the inheritance that is allotted to us when you become a Christian. So he's talking about what you get when you die. He's talking about what you get when Jesus Christ returns or you die. So not, not the spiritual blessings in this life, which come up in other places. But this is giving them a hope of eternal um, uh, life that is eternally secure. And here specifically, he's talking about what it is, the eternal inheritance. Now, imagine you had a rich uncle. I always call him Rich Uncle Lou. I don't have a rich Uncle Lou that I know of, but let's say you did, and uh, he was becoming elderly and frail, and so you were spending a lot of time and money and effort looking after him. You were praying for his medical bills, and you started realizing your bank account's being drained by this, but you, you love the man, and you're obligated to him, and there's no one else looking after him, but you start thinking, how am I going to pay for my own kid's college if I'm spending all this money on Uncle Lou? And it looks like he only has a few months left. I mean, I, I just have to do this. And one day, Uncle Lou calls you in and shows you a copy of his will. And in his will, it says that his life insurance policy of $5 million will go to you as soon as he dies. You're immediately going to feel the burden lifted. Whatever you spend, whatever you endure over the next few months looking after him is not a concern for you because you know you're going to get something as the inheritance that will make up for it and more. That's what Peter is doing for these elect exiles. That's what Peter is doing for us who may go through trials, maybe even persecution, and these people have lost their homeland, they've lost their, their families perhaps, their jobs, they've been scattered abroad, and they're enduring this, and you might worry about the cost of being a Christian. And so Peter is writing saying, there's a, a will, and in this will is an inheritance that's going to make it worth it. So don't worry about what gets wiped out in this life because in the next life you've got this thing coming and it is sure. That's what Peter's doing for us. Now inheritance is a, it's a touchy topic. Some of the most dramatic counseling scenarios that emerge in churches is when a loved one dies and a family member receives an inheritance that another family member was expecting. I've had to mediate those before. Um, and what happens there is if you think that you're going to get something, even though you haven't lost anything, if you're expecting to get it, maybe even if it was promised to you, and when the time comes you don't get it, it's devastating. It can be devastating to people. And inheritance, by definition, is not something that you deserve, if you think about it. If you think about it carefully, an inheritance technically is someone else's possession, that they decide to give you or not give you. And you actually don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But people feel entitled to it because that's kind of what happens. You know, it's supposed to go to whoever it is who thinks that it should be going to them. So it's more helpful to know ahead of time what you are and what you're not going to get. And so Peter spells it out for us. Now, if you're the wealthy one in your family and you notice that when you're in the hospital, all of your friends and family show up circling the bed like vultures. Perhaps you should just tell them beforehand what they're going to get, what they're not going to get, so that you can manage the shock then and it doesn't become a, a huge problem later. This is what um, Warren Buffett did. 
You know, in 1996, Warren Buffett was the, the richest man in the world, and he called a press conference, and he announced that in his will, he was leaving 99% of his fortune to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, I would have loved to have seen the thought bubbles popping up over the heads of the relatives who were there, who were invited, sitting there, and hearing this announcement that 99% of this fortune was not going to them. Um, you can imagine somebody thinking, come on, surely your own flesh and blood has more claim to your fortune than Bill Gates. It's not like he needs it. But don't worry, they, they're all still taken care of. They're all multis, multi-zillionaires as well. But that's what happens when you've got 99%. The 1% is still big. But at least they knew beforehand. So when Warren Buffett dies, no one's going to be shocked by what happens. And so here in verse 3, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, in verse 4, to an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Your salvation from sin is the best thing that ever happened to you. The fact that you've been forgiven of all the guilt that you amass. The fact that you have been granted mercy by one who didn't have to give you that mercy, but out of his great love, because of his great mercy, he did this. A great cost to himself, God sending his son to bear your sin on the cross and be that substitute to, to carry your sin and bear the wrath that you earned so that you can get all the free, infinite righteousness of Christ. That's really the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Last week we looked at that where Jesus says, don't rejoice in other stuff when you can be rejoicing that your names are written in heaven. But that's not all we get. It's not just that we are saved unto an eternity of neutrality with God where he just doesn't punish us. That would have been good enough. Okay, you're not going to hell. Go live there on the eternal golf course or whatever it is you want to go and do. No, 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 we get so much more. We get adopted into his family. We get the affection and love and commitment and loyalty of, of our heavenly father, bought for us by our brother, who is a, a co-heir, meaning we become heirs of the fortune with him. Romans 8.15 says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What Romans 8, 15 and 17 are saying is that your suffering for Christ will be overshadowed by the inheritance that you get with him. He went through the suffering on earth and inherited this amazing blessing, and we become co-inheritors, fellow heirs with Christ. So the suffering we go through doesn't matter either. It's just going to be overshadowed by what we get, what is acquired by his resurrection. But there is a problem with inheritances, the concept of inheritances. If you even think about the inheritance of, of Israel's land, what was the problem with inheriting the land? They could lose it. They got kicked out during the exile. The whole problem with what's happening right now in the news, with all of the conflict in the Middle East, is all about the fact 
that the Israelis say, this is our divine inheritance as recorded in the Bible. And others say, nah, we were here first. You left it alone for too long. And so there's this conflict. And this is the, the thing. If you've been promised something and now you don't have it, it becomes devastating and you're willing to fight for it. And so the problem with a promise from Peter saying you have an inheritance is that the word inheritance is infused with our human understanding that inheritances are great if you actually get them. But you can be prevented from getting it or even if you get it, you can lose it. Someone can take it from you. Or even worse, you can be your own worst enemy and you can squander it. So I kind of don't want my inheritance now, right? Because I'll need it later. Think of the prodigal son. That's exactly what happened. He goes to his wealthy father. He demands his inheritance. His father gives him a cut of the inheritance. And he goes off and he's prodigal with it. And he squanders it all on loose living. Almost instantly. That's the problem with an inheritance. And so Peter goes off on a descriptive tangent about how this inheritance he's talking about, the one that's been secured for us by God, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. The one that's been secured for us by the resurrection of Christ in the past, that's been given to us now, we're already born again. He's going to go off on this descriptive tangent to tell us it's safe. It's guaranteed. It can't be stolen. It can't be lost. And it can't even be squandered by you. You can't even lose this. So this is what he calls it. Look again at verse 3. Uh, sorry, verse 4. To an in, verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he describes inheritance with these words, imperishable. What that means is that there's no risk of it expiring, of it um, being eaten away. You know, Jesus mentioned this in Matthew 6, 20, when he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth, where what? Moth and rust destroy. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot reach it. And so that's talking about the corroding effect of just elements on earth that can take away your inheritance. Your inheritance that you have that's secured by Christ, that can't happen to it. It can't get less over time. It's imperishable, non-expiring. So I have a true story I've been meaning to tell you for a while. I've been saving it, and this is the perfect spot for it. This is a true story that a friend of mine who is a pastor actually experienced in his church. The ministry is just so fun sometimes. It's really entertaining. So in his church, there is a family whose the father dies and leaves for them as an inheritance a treasure map. And this is a treasure map with clues. And you go from one clue to the next. And then there's another clue. And he spent this very intricate uh, time and effort going into this. And he builds this treasure map. And so when he dies, instead of getting an inheritance, they get the treasure map. So, it, I mean, the family gets together and they work on it. And, but the problem is it's kind of a complicated treasure map. He wasn't going to make this easy. And so it takes them months to crack the code. But eventually they do, and they find the inheritance. Let me just remind you that what you're about to hear is a true story. 
And when they get to the location on the map, it, it's a barn. And they open the barn, and inside is their inheritance. He had turned his entire family fortune into a crop of marijuana and stored it in a barn with the thinking that all of this money I spent on this crop is now going to be worth even more when you go through the effort of, you know, selling an illegal drug without getting caught. But here's the twist. It had taken them so long to find it, it had molded and the whole thing was gone off. <laughs> so that is the perfect reminder that some inheritances are perishable. Don't do that. If you're going to leave money to the church, just, you know, give us a bank account, please. I don't want to go on a marijuana map hunt. Imperishable. The second word is undefiled. Undefiled, it talks about um, paint that has been colored by other paints or stained by other paints. So to be undefiled means to be not stained to be not mixed with anything else. The, the terminology we would use is that the inheritance has no catches. There's nothing else in there. So imagine you, you get this inheritance, but there's, there's a catch. You need to do this or you do that. I've, um, I've heard of these situations as well. Our, our church in South Africa, when we were um, looking to expand and buy property, there was a, a school that had a large piece of property they didn't need, but they needed the money. So they were going to sell it to our church, and it was perfect, and it had this giant parking lot, and everything was wonderful, and everybody was happy until it came down where we actually got to do the deal, and it turned out that that property had been left to the church um, by a, an Anglican man. We call him Episcopalian. We call him Anglican in South Africa, and he had stipulated that the property cannot go to Baptists. So, I mean, sure, okay. But now there's a school that needs the money and a church that needs the property and there's nothing we could do about it because that was a catch. Here's, here's my inheritance, but you can't use it this way or that way. So our inheritance doesn't come like that. It's not mixed with anything. There's nothing that you're going to find in it where you're like, oh, but I don't actually get this inheritance. The third word he uses is unfading. That just means it doesn't diminish with time. It's time-proof. It, it, there's no inflation. It doesn't lose value. Like if, if you leave somebody something that's valuable when you buy it, maybe it's not valuable by the time they get it because time makes it less valuable. This happened, I was working in the master seminary library and we would get, people would die and they would leave certain things to the library, usually a book collection or, or something that the library could use. And so we would have to sort through it. But one day, this um, dear old soul had gone to be in with the Lord and left their entire collection, a big box of cassette tapes, John MacArthur sermons. And I remember the librarian came and looked through all of this. I mean, this is the Master Seminary. Like, we have access to John MacArthur sermons for free. We don't need cassette tapes. Oh, for those of you who don't know what that is, youngsters, never mind. Ask your parents at home. And that's the point, is that, you know, in the, in the, in the days of free MP3s online, you don't need a cassette tape. So that was a valuable collection. Each one of those tapes cost a couple of dollars plus shipping, and it had been looked after for all those years, and now it was bequeathed to someone, and during that time, it had lost all of its value. And, and our inheritance is not like that. The inheritance that was secured for us 2,000 years ago on Calvary, it's just as valuable as it was that day, and it will never, ever fade in its value at all. And so that's what, that's what Peter's saying. 
And then he, he moves after these three descriptors into this little phrase, kept in heaven. Kept in heaven. One commentator described Peter's description here as, our inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. And here he says it's theft-proof. It's kept in a super-safe vault. It is guaranteed. It's not kept in a barn. It's kept in heaven. And if we're not kept in heaven, it would be vulnerable to things affecting it here on earth. Which brings us to our second main point today, our third in the little mini-series. So we've looked at the three sources of hope being eternal life and our internal inheritance. But part of that is the eternal security. Our hope is placed in our eternal security. Look at verse 5. So verse 4 ends with, kept for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So this is a concept you need to get familiar with, is the idea that sometimes the Bible talks about us as having been saved, and sometimes it says you are being saved. And that's because our salvation is a both and. It's something that happened in the past on Calvary. It's done. Jesus saved us. His resurrection is what sealed that. But there is a sense in which, well, we're still beset by temptation. We can still fall into sin. We haven't escaped death. I mean, we're just waiting to die, basically. So there's lots of aspects of our salvation from sin and death that are still being worked out. And will only be realized when you die. The doctrine of glorification. Or if Jesus comes back. You, you know, we always have to say, or if Jesus comes back first. That's why he says being revealed at the last time. Whatever that last time is. It's the Greek word eschaton. When we get the word eschatology. The, the story of the last time. The, the study of the last time. So that's when you get your salvation. Whether it's your last time, which might be today for some of you. You might have an eschaton on the way home. I mean, that would be sad, but not for you, because then your salvation is revealed. Or maybe in the near future, if you look at world events, it always looks like it's near, which is great. The Lord will return, and then we will all experience this. But this is what he's saying. It's being kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So the only thing that that still needs to happen in our salvation is that it needs to be realized. So in the meantime, it needs to be guarded. And you, you think, well, why? Why is the scriptures always talking about this? You know, Jude ends his epistle with, you know, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and is able to be the one who presents you uh, blameless in, in glory and all that. There's always this Someone needs to prevent you from stumbling. Someone needs to guard you by the power of God. Like, what is going on there? And this is to reassure us of something that still many, many Christians struggle with. What if I lose my salvation? I mean, maybe you've thought about that yourself, or maybe you've heard people talk about it, that it's great that I'm a Christian now, but what if I don't end up being a Christian? Lose my salvation. And then usually what causes you to think that is you know somebody who you thought was a Christian and now is no longer one. You know, somebody who they were an elder in a church or they were 
you know, a famous Christian singer or whatever, and now they renounce Christ and they're an atheist. And you're like, well, what if that happens to me? They were a Christian and they lost their salvation. No. They were never a Christian. It's so easy to call yourself a Christian. It's one of the major problems today is people aren't sure if they're actually Christians or not. But for those who are actually Christians, you can't lose your salvation. That's why the scriptures keep telling us that. So you're the reason it's safe isn't because of you, because if it were up to you, you would lose it. The reason it's safe is because it's up to God, and that's what Peter's saying here. You're not going to be the prodigal son who squanders your inheritance. You can't be, because you've been guarded by God's power. Part of your inheritance, part of what makes your inheritance, yeah, let's put it this way, Part of what's necessary for you to get your inheritance is not only the work that Jesus Christ did to secure it. Part of what's necessary for you to get your assurance is that you're actually there to get it. That, that you don't get lost. Because look what Peter actually says. It's quite interesting. He's not, at this point, he's shifted gears a little. I don't know if you picked that up. He's not talking about the inheritance anymore. Listen, verse 5, uh, verse 4. So here he talks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fading, kept in heaven for you. But now he switches gears. Now he stops talking about the inheritance. He starts talking about the you. So it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. It's, now he's not talking about the inheritance that's being guarded. It's you being guarded. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be real, revealed in the last time. So God is not only keeping your salvation, your inheritance secure in heaven, and it's it can't be corrupted, and it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, but he's, he's keeping it in heaven, but he's also, he's guarding you so that you're there to get the inheritance. It doesn't matter that he secured heaven and some of the people he secured it for don't show up. So he makes it his job, his prerogative to get you there. And so it's by God's power. And so if I asked you this question and all you had in your Bible was verse 5, how would you answer it? This is the question. Whose job is it to keep you safe? Look at the verse. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. So you see there's two roles there, isn't there? So it's God's power, but your role is in there. Did you spot it? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. You see, faith is the thing that you do. So that's why people sometimes get confused because they say, yes, yes, there's all this talk about God's power and how powerful God is and God can't mess up, but it's being guarded through my faith. So what if my faith messes up? Is my faith the weak link here? That's why people get confused about this. They're like, yeah, I totally trust God's able to keep me safe, but I got to guard it through faith. Well, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Well, what if I lose my faith? So... It's helpful for you to understand that your faith is not a contribution to this project. It's, your faith is a, 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 you're a passive participant in that sense. Because your faith itself is a gift from God. So when he says through faith, when the Bible talks about salvation coming through faith, it means as opposed to works. You're being guarded through your faith, not through your performance. Now, if the verse said, for you who are being guarded by the power of God through your performance as a Christian for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, now that would be a problem. That would be cause for concern. 
Because your performance as a Christian kind of goes up and down, doesn't it? Sometimes you're walking with the Lord, you're filled with the Spirit, you're, you're following counsel, you're, you're imbibing the Word, everything's going well, you're repenting of your sin, and other times you're struggling. You doubt, you sin. And so if he was guarding you by his power, but he was keeping it through your performance, through your works, through your church attendance, through your giving, through your serving, through your Bible reading, through your prayer, through your thought life, if he was guarding you through that, it would be a very, very vulnerable inheritance. But it's not. It's through faith. And faith is a gift of God, and you don't do faith. You, you believe. How do you know you believe? Because you're believing. You're a believer. Where did that come from? It came from God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace, free gift of God, for by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. So you see there again, your faith has been pitted against works. I'll read it again, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one should boast. So God gets all the glory. His power saves you. His power keeps you saved. It's kind of the role of the pilot versus the role of the passenger. I mean, if I'm flying from Mobile to Atlanta, me and the pilot, we're both flying from Mobile to Atlanta, right? But one of us has an active role, and one of us has a passive role. So we're both flying, but when we say the pilot's flying, he's actually doing the flying. I mean, I don't know how it works. Maybe doing the flying means he flips the on switch, and then the computer does it. But anyway, I'm, I'm oversimplifying. You need a pilot, and he's got an active role. Your job as the passenger is to just sit there. Now, you can be a good passenger and just sit there. Or you can be a bad passenger and get very panicky and, and loud and, and obnoxious and run up and down the plane. That doesn't change the destination. It's still Atlanta. And it doesn't even affect the pilot. I mean, you can't get through that door. They might tase you or whatever. But the pilot, he's just doing his thing. In the same way, your salvation, your faith is what helps you enjoy the the. The process, you have assurance of your salvation, you're placing your faith in your salvation, you're placing your faith in Christ, I mean, and you know that you've got your salvation. And that's kind of passive. Now you get Christians that are like, oh, what if I lose it, what if I lose it? And you're running up and down and you're bugging all the other passengers. That doesn't affect the work that the pilot's doing. He's going to get you there. But you're really missing out at that point. You really are. And so God gets all the glory because it's his power that guards you. A lot of um, heist movies, I like that genre of movies. It's the, the heist movie is where there's some sort of treasure or jewel or fortune that needs to be stolen. And you always know it's going to be stolen because they somehow they get you to side with the bad guys that are stealing. And it's not a heist movie. I mean, if just once you want to see the jewel thief at the end of the movie be like, no, nope, couldn't get it, sorry, that's it. But they always get it. It's always this fancy way of getting it. But the, the part of the genre is there's a portion of the movie where they explain to you how difficult it is to get this thing. It's like the whole concept of the Mission Impossible. Why is it impossible? Well, because they've got these, whatever, you know, oceans, all the oceans movies. 
lasers that move and guards all the time and heat sensors and all the stuff. And then it's up to the bad guy to figure out how to get through all of that. Now, just imagine a movie written by a Christian that was like, um, okay, the treasure is eternal life. And it's in the safe. And the one guarding it is God. So he's omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Well, that's a terrible movie. Because there's, don't even bother. He knows everything before you do it. He's all-powerful and can do anything he wants. And he's everywhere at once. And you can't ever steal it. But that's what you want when it's a movie about your salvation, right? You want it to be super boring. There's a salvation. There's absolutely nothing that can touch it. God's guarding it. There's no plot. It's safe. That's what Peter's telling us. If, in fact, if God could lose it, his own glory would be tarnished. He wouldn't be God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, if believers are lost, God loses more than they do. For he loses his honor. He loses his character for truthfulness and for the glory of his name. And the glory of his name is tarnished. So if believers are lost, God loses more than they do because he loses honor, he loses character for truthfulness, and the glory of his name is tarnished. You kind of want to ask yourself, who lost more in 1996? The guy who spent a dollar for Pepsi and didn't get 40000 Or did Pepsi lose something? Pepsi lost their reputation. By the way, the same thing happened in Chile. And then you got the Pepsi, where's my jets thing coming later as well. So Pepsi, at this point, they make a promise. All of their customers are like, I'm just buying the Pepsi. I don't trust them. That's what would happen if God lost one believer. Well, if, if he promised to save that guy and that guy's not saved, then I don't know if I can trust him. And his own glory is tarnished. So Jesus says this in John 10, 28 and 29. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So here again, he's talking about the imperishable. Remember, Peter's listening to this, so this is where he learned this stuff. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, we've sung, He will hold me fast. Recently, we sang last week, and we were saying before that, so I don't want to ask Christopher to do it again this week, but really, that's why we sing it, because that's just such a cool truth. And it's biblical. It comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. I will hold them tight. They're, I'm not going to lose them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So John 10, 28 is responding to this concept that there's someone out there trying to snatch us. Who's that? Who's the only person who wants us to lose our salvation? Satan. Satan. And that's why it's important to put our trust in God's power. Because if it were just up to us, it's us against Satan. I don't like those odds. But at the moment, it's God against Satan. I'm going all in with God. Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can't be snatched. Your inheritance can't be lost. It can't fade. It can't expire. It can't go missing. You can't go missing. You'll be there to get it. You can't be snatched out of his hand. It's just either the Bible's true or it's not. And if it's true, you're safe. Now, how does this affect your life? Yay, I heard a sermon on 1 Peter. Now what? How's this different? Well, I don't know about you, but the more I've been watching the news lately, the, the more I'm challenged by the verse in Philippians that says, be anxious for nothing. I mean, there's stuff going on. Who knows what the future is going to hold? There is so much that could go wrong. I bet if you haven't been reading widely in the news, you probably only think that the only thing that could go wrong is World War III starting soon. That's nothing. You should see about these meteors and comets that are coming towards us. I mean, World War III, at least we're here. There's, there's potential economic meltdown, there's potential terrorism, there's potential, there's another pandemic that's going to make COVID look like the common cold, which it kind of does. Um, you know, like a real pandemic. I mean, anything could go wrong. So how does this affect you? Well, remember, Peter's writing this to tell people that are in actual precarious situations, real physical danger. Keep calm. Carry on. Don't panic. Take a deep breath. Remind yourself. God is in control. No famine, no war, no disease, no plague, no nothing can snatch you from his hand. That's the most important thing about your life, that you're right with Christ. And you're safe, and it's, it's kept for you. So how does it affect your life? Rather than fill your mind with all the things that could go wrong in this life, fill your mind with all the things that this life can't touch in the next life. If you knew for a fact that you were about to inherit millions and millions of dollars, it was just, you know, it's in probate, it's coming through any day now, it's going to come through, you're going to give the check millions of dollars. Would you really be concerned that you spilled coffee on your expensive suit? Would you really be concerned that the apartment you live in has a roach infestation? If you knew you were about to inherit a mansion? Of course not. This is what Peter's doing. He's saying, listen, there's mansions in glory. There's an inheritance. It's waiting for you. Keep calm. Carry on. Keep your eyes on heaven. Hope will help your endurance. Well, there's, there's a question that's left kind of unanswered it's a question that arises from christians who go through trials you know pastors will say god is testing your faith but if you've been paying attention to the last couple of sermons you might have this question if my faith is secure and god already knows that my faith is secure and there's nothing that can interrupt or interfere with it then why is he testing me he already knows i'm saved he's already saved it he's already done that what is the purpose of the trial if God accomplished it and he keeps it secure, why is he testing? And what if I fail this test? What's going to happen? You just told me it's secure and not even I can mess it up. So what if I do fail the test? What's the point of trials in this life if they don't affect your inheritance? And for that answer, you have to come back next week and I'll tell you. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder that we have an inheritance, that it is secure, that it is as sure as you are. And so, Father, we place all of our trust in our dear Lord Jesus Christ who secured this for us and guards it. We place our trust in you and your power. We do pray that you would help us to live holy lives. You help us to be spurred on to share the gospel with others that they too can enjoy this assurance. And we do commit to you our leaders of our country and world affairs and all the things that might shake our confidence. And we pray that your spirit would just remind us daily that these things are so temporary and so inconsequential compared to what you have already done for us and has secured for us for all eternity. So we pray these things because of Jesus and what he did. Amen.